This year, without a doubt, has been a complicated one for commercial real estate. Interest rate rises have upended the market, stalling deals, spooking investors, and enforcing repricing and rethinking on values. Can you explain how inflation got so high? Because two years ago, everything seemed fine. We had a rapid recovery from the pandemic. Uh, down by about two and a quarter percent, while the Nasdaq is down by three percent. Investors, of course, reacting to the announcement from the Fed to raise. Plus, you can add in a housing crisis that's just gone from bad to terrible, the realization that the workplace is altered forever, and some stark reminders of the worsening climate crisis. And it's safe to say the industry is heading into 2023 with some significant challenges, and if you listen to the optimists, some opportunities too. This is BizNow Reports. I'm Miriam Hall. And on this episode of the podcast, which is the final for the year, we're hearing from reporters across our newsroom about the dominant issues in their markets through the year and what's top of mind for their sources. Our discussion begins on one of the biggest issues of the year, interest rates, with our UK editor, Mike Phillips, who says the way interest rates have gone through the year isn't what many predicted. I think if you take a step back, last year inflation was a huge topic of conversation, but I think last year there was the expectation amongst economists that inflation would be a bit more transitory than it's proved, particularly the Russia-Ukraine war, which started in February, has seen inflation become a lot more entrenched. And um, in order to try and tame inflation, central banks, you know, the Fed in the US and the Bank of England in the UK have needed to raise interest rates a lot more sharply than than people have perhaps expected. And so, you know, there was always an expectation that interest rates would have to rise. You know, they've been zero for pretty much a decade and everyone kind of knew it was untenable for rates to stay at zero forever. But 0% interest rates are absolutely brilliant for commercial real estate and make it a lot easier to make money. And as I say, people had been factoring in that rise in rates, but not as sharply um, and as quickly as it actually came through. And then obviously in the UK, you had the mini budget in September, uh, which tanked the pound and necessitated those rates to rise even faster. I'm not going to make any comment now. Thank you. The Chancellor wouldn't comment on the overnight drop in the value of the pound. Kwasi Kwarteng's giant change of economic direction, borrowing for tax cuts, has already triggered a sell-off of sterling on Friday. Overnight, the pound lost nearly 5% of its value. So I think the real estate industry was expecting that rise in rates, but not as quickly as it was ultimately had to come through. And as I say, kind of... um, rising rates are not a great thing for for real estate investment generally. I heard yesterday at an event that I was at from a, a chief financial officer that every time they speak to the banks, the banks are saying, do you know anyone who works in workout? We're desperately um, staffing up our workout group. Is that suggesting, do you think that 2023 is going to see some distress? And are you hearing similar things? I think... Um, I think it will be a sort of tough year. I mean, the reference point for commercial real estate is very obviously the sort of financial crisis that post the Lehman collapse 
And I've certainly not spoken to many people who think the levels of distress are going to be in any way similar to to that. Um, banks had been a lot more banks and lenders generally had been a lot more cautious in 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 this kind of upcycle than they were in the sort of upcycle of 2006 2007 when you know kind of debt levels were sort of 95% of the value of value of properties that being said it's a lot more well not necessarily a lot trickier but it's a different it's a different um issue that banks are going to be facing if you think about 2018 and 19 were two of the record years for uh for real estate investment a lot of real estate loans particularly in the in the UK I think in the US real estate loans tend to be sort of longer term but certainly in the UK and Europe five year terms are pretty are pretty common so a lot of those r- loans written at kind of record record peaks were will be coming for refinancing in 2023 and 2024 and again those loans were probably underwritten at an interest rate margin and all in cost of debt of let's say sort of two and a half three percent they now need to be refinanced when the cost of debt is sort of five six percent um so in order to sort of bridge that gap um the sponsors the owners of the property is going to have to sort of pony up some more money um and some of them will be able to do that and they will see value in putting more money into the deals but a lot of them either won't be able to or won't be willing to put more money in. So, um, and I guess one thing that people have sort of said to me is that things might happen a lot more quickly this time around uh, because the value of the property might not have suffered quite as much. Um, You know, it's not going to be a sort of 150% LTV situation like you had during 2009. Uh, The the LTV might have risen from, let's say, 60% to 80%. So the bank is actually still going to get its entire loan paid back if it precipitates a sale. Um, So banks might actually be a bit quicker to act this time round because they're not on the hook to to lose quite as much money. So I think there will be distress, not as not as much. And it will take a different form, which is actually possibly slightly more complex to to work out because it's about the the amount by which income covers the interest payments rather than an LTV issue. We are thinking of the millions in the path of this hurricane, the Category 4 hurricane slamming into Florida's southwest coast this afternoon and making landfall. For most of California, the years-long mega drought is a slow-motion disaster. 97% of the state uh, there is There is a dam which officials are keeping a close eye on because they're worried that dam might break. And if that dam fails, they're worried about over 100 homes as well as businesses and churches and a school also being completely Speaking of ponying up money, I mean, obviously everyone is concerned about protecting their investments. Do you think that the focus on sustainability is going to be as strong going forward, particularly in light of like everything that's happened in the last year, for example, horrific hurricane in Florida? I think, you know, there's always the worry that during times of economic downturn, things like sustainability, decarbonisation of real estate, takes a takes a back seat and i think i think there's definitely 
a chance that that happens and that certainly happened during the during the sort of 2008 financial crisis i think the difference this time around i think you know you're you're sat in new york and you know you have very stringent regulation in new york um regarding the decarbonization of of real estate assets local law 97 etc um in the uk we have you know increasingly stringent regulation called energy performance certificates if your building doesn't meet a certain um, energy performance hurdle it will be illegal to uh, to lease it come come 2030 I think this time around um, sustainability is actually intrinsically linked to financial returns and the obsolescence of buildings so it becomes a lot more difficult to actually park it because you could you could maybe think we're going to park this for a for a couple of years but you know you're seeing increasing data msci put out a report last uh last um last month saying green buildings sell for a premium uh to their less green counterparts um and that's really putting some some sort of data behind what is increasingly been the sort of anecdotal evidence that um, you know, if you have a sort of unsustainable building in a, and you know, a, a sort of carbon emitting building in a city like London or New York or Paris, um, it will sell for less than its sort of greener counterparts. CBRE put out a report um, and I think Knight Frank also put out a similar report recently saying on the leasing side, greener offices lease for a um, for for a premium to to their sort of less green counterparts and so it's a lot more difficult to put sustainability on the on the on the back burner when it's actually going to impact financial returns as well and that makes things a lot more complex for for asset owners um you know it's just this extra extra thing that has to be has to be sort of factored into sort of underwriting asset management plans capex plans um but it needs to be done, you know, A, for those for those buildings to sort of avoid becoming obsolete and becoming, you know, what this term that's increasingly common, stranded assets. Um, and also for the planet as well, because as you say, you know, we are seeing increasing extreme weather events um, across, across the world. And so, um, you know, that kind of global climate imperative uh, is becoming more more acute, you know, month by month and so uh for your bottom line and also for the planet i think it will be a lot more difficult to park it this time in new york building owners are barely over a year away from being forced to comply with strict regulation that sets emissions limits on large and mid-sized buildings the first round of caps and the fines for exceeding them are starting in 2024 But it's a very different story in Texas. This summer, state officials there released a list of 10 companies and more than 300 investment funds that are banned from doing business in the state because they, quote-unquote, boycott energy companies. BlackRock, UBS are on the list, and our Dallas-Fort Worth reporter Olivia Lukemeyer is speaking here about how that may have ramifications for the real estate industry. Texas Teachers Retirement System, which is our largest public pension fund, and it's def- it's one of the largest in the country, if not the world, they invest in real estate um, as one of their main, you know, uh, parts of their portfolio. And so they are, they have now been 
legally barred from investing in companies like Blackstone or any sort of the big, you know, in, uh, real estate investment managers because of those companies' stated support for renewable energy. If you have done anything that even smells like boycotting the energy industry, technically, Texas must disinvest from your business. And so there, it's, it's interesting because we haven't really seen that law come to total fruition yet. It's fairly new and we're still waiting to see how the comptroller is going to enforce it. But, you know, there's a lot of conversation around could that discourage cross-state investment into Texas? Maybe people don't want to invest in buildings here because there is a lot of data to back up the fact that if you are a sustainable building, you're a better investment long term. And so if our buildings are being discouraged from being built sustainably, perhaps that discourages investment from out of state and even from out of the nation. Is that shaping up to be a big fight, do you think? I think once that starts to happen, there is going to be, you know, a lot of a lot more conversation around it. And I mean, you, one could argue that it's already starting to happen, that maybe that with the lack of corporate relocations, like maybe Texas's stated uh, position as an anti-ESG state is driving investment from the state. Um, I think it's still a little too early to see how much that sort of flares up like a resistance, but I, I think it would be fair to say that as more time elapses, you may see more companies um, pushing back on that. That issue of company relocations to the state is already making headlines. This year, Texas has secured just 19 out-of-state headquarters. That's less than a third on the 62 in 2021 and marks the slowest relocation year since 2017. Obviously, that's a huge dip. And, you know, it's important to mention that 2021 was a, a unique year. But even the past three years before that, we had um, between 25 and 35 relocations a year. So we are hitting the lowest year for corporate relocation since 2017. And a lot of that has to do with people People think. It has to do with the fact that Texas is not quite as competitive as it once was. Um, and there are several reasons for that. Um, one huge reason is the cost of living increases that we've seen. Uh, it used to be that Texas was considered extremely cost competitive in terms of housing costs, um, labor costs. But because of the success we've had in attracting companies, um, we now uh, have to be paying a lot more for labor. And so there is a, a labor cost increase, and then there's obviously the housing cost increase. And so it's just not as cheap as it used to be. And then there are, there are other concerns that um, Texas may be not as business friendly as it once was. And a lot of that has to do with um, the political position of Texas. There have been several prominent examples of brush-ups with corporations between state legislature and uh, brush-ups with corporations. Um, there have been issues over the uh, overturning of Roe. There have been issues around uh, the state's um, e anti-ESG platform. And um, some site selection experts say that that is discouraging to companies who may have considered Texas in the past because they're worried about recruitment when they get here. They're worried they won't be able to recruit women um, or people of color or just people of um, minority status in general. So um, there are several things at play there, but I would say that those are the two biggest factors. Is that something that people talk about a lot in the real estate industry? And do you find that there are people are forming opinions on what, what should happen? 
It is extremely difficult to find people who are comfortable speaking on that topic. It takes a lot of source development and it takes a lot of trust. Um, and, and it's always couched with the really important disclaimer that like Texas still is a, a really competitive state relative to other states. And um, it, in no way are we going to see relocations like plummet you know, I think this is a unique year. We also have to take into the fact that we are, uh, you know, staring down a recession. And so a lot of important decisions are being paused. But no, it's not a topic people feel comfortable talking about. And of course, um, we uh, people always want to look on the bright side. And, and I understand that. According to a new report from DFW-based Residential Strategies, North Texas is on pace to add nearly 5,000 build-to-rent homes this year. That's 9% of all new housing construction in the area. The trend really started in 2012 when investment banks started buying up homes in Tell me a little bit about the housing crisis in Texas. I mean, it is obviously a national problem. What kind of efforts have there been to, to, to address it? It's absolutely an issue in DFW. Um, we've seen housing prices increase across all of our major metros at historic rates of growth. Um, and as a result, we have a very large pool of individuals who would be homeowners, but they are forced to be, remain renters until housing prices come down um, or until mortgage rates come down really at this point. Um, and so one way that developers are seeking to address the need is by building what is called build to rent, which is essentially a development of single family homes of what you would think of as a normal single family home, but built specifically for the purpose of renting. And um, there's a lot of, uh, like with any new product, there is a lot of education that comes with um, building these communities. So they have, they're kind of, developers are kind of tackling two different groups, right? They're, they're um, attempting to educate municipalities about what this product is. And at the same time, they have to educate um, nearby residents about what this product is. There are a lot of misconceptions about build to rent. A lot of people see horizontal multifamily, which is how they are termed in a municipal document. And they automatically assume that that is an apartment. And, um, and that spurs a lot of concerns around traffic, school crowding, um, crime, things like that. And so uh, the developers are having to put in a lot of extra legwork, both at city council meetings and planning and zoning meetings, as well as doing some community outreach to really inform people about what this new product is um, and, um, you know, what need it is trying to address, which is both a housing inventory shortage, but also a growing community of renters that have no option but to continue to rent, but still want to have that single family lifestyle because they're at the stage of their life where they'd like a house with a yard and, and all of that comes with living in a home. Yeah, there's a lot of pushback to um, SFR, as we call it, or BTR. I, I mean, particularly because it's been such a big um, area for the corporate landlords. Mm. People just have a real sense of anxiety about it. The idea of like your landlord being Wall Street, 
is that the sense that you get that people are like, I don't want to put more money in the pockets of these corporate giants. This this should be this should be families who own these homes. You no, know, it's interesting. I think that a lot of like lay people don't really know who the ownership, um, what the structure of the ownership is of where they're living. And so we did a big project on that earlier this year. And for I would say the majority of people, that that's not their main concern because they just don't know the nitty gritty. But the people who do know that their home is owned by some institutional landlord that does not live locally and has no concept like conception of the community um, it is a concern for them especially it's it's an even bigger concern for the HOAs and so you mentioned SFR which is a separate uh, a separate issue which is where a home in a neighborhood is or is um, is converted into a rental and typically it is owned by like an institutional landlord um, and the HOAs really don't like that because that landlord um, isn't present it's not part of the community and they can um, allegedly be difficult to get a hold of if there's an issue. Can you give me a sense of the rent rises that that you've been seeing in your market? Double digit rent growth increases um, in da- definitely in Dallas, Fort Worth. Um, I think Austin is typically seeing double digit rent increases uh, year over year. Um, and I think Houston and San Antonio are a little bit slower. They're typically in the high single digits. But in terms of uh, like historical average, all of them are far exceeding their historical averages. Has that meant a big push towards multifamily purchases? We are a huge multifamily investment uh, market. I, I can't give you an exact statistic, but I would I would argue that we are in the top three with, for the past couple of years, just because there is a huge there is a a huge in migration um, trend in Texas. There are people moving to Texas from all over the United States. The headlines. It, mostly it's about California and New York, but it's more than that. I mean, there are people moving from all over and obviously, you know, investors are seeing the opportunity there to get in on the multifamily uh, market, especially because it's just so hard for those people to afford a home. Multifamily is a hot asset. Investors, of course, are keen to lock in units that are not regulated to capitalize on the fact that would-be buyers are increasingly forced out of the housing market. But industrial, too, has remained hugely popular because although it is incredibly difficult to get a construction loan, the demand is still there in a big way. Now, big picture, it's mixed. Uh, Amazon is closing or canceling some warehouses, but Target has gone from one sorting site in Minneapolis to five this year with more to follow in 2023. Now, Prologis is the largest warehouse REIT. It only has 2% of space available. Many tenants have signed long leases. But increasingly, there's community pushback to this kind of development from people who just don't want to bear the brunt of traffic and pollution of warehouses. Our Los Angeles reporter, Bianca Barragan, says the industrial market in her reporting patch continues to be driven by high rents and incredibly tight vacancy. Kind of (laughs) ridiculously so. Like Vacancy um, is under 1% by some counts. In greater LA, there's still tens of millions of square feet under construction in greater LA as of Q3 reports. Um, I will say that, uh, you know, despite all of these really uh, strong fundamentals, redevelopment play, but when I spoke to their, one of their executives kind of overseeing the West region, we exchanged emails. I asked, you know, what's the plan for this property? And at the time he said that it was you know, definitely going to be redevelopment. You know, it's a well-located asset. It's in a major gateway city. It's close to the urban core. It was just outside of downtown. And he listed off a variety of possible 
uses, and all of them were industrial. Um, but Prologis filed plans with the city uh, in late November, and yes, they had included you know the possibility of this being entitled for a logistics facility, but they also were seeking approvals to develop the property as a soundstage and production studio, which has been property type that's attracted a lot of investor or institutional investor interest. And that could indicate that they are feeling the same way that a lot of people are feeling, that maybe this isn't where we want to be fully exposed to. Exactly. Yeah, I think in their uh, most recent earnings call, they had said, you know, we're pivoting away from spec, we're going to do build to suit. And it definitely crossed my mind, like, oh, is, is this what's happening here? Is this what we're seeing play out? There has been pushback from communities against industrial space, which is very interesting. And I, I'm kind of encountering it for the first time in New York and New Jersey at the moment. Is, has there been a similar kind of community uproar in places in California against industrial, considering it is such a big development area? Absolutely, yeah. Um, where we've seen it, well, where I've seen it most is um, to the east in the Inland Empire, which is, you know, a top industrial market. It's a very long-time industrial zone. You know, it's not like these popped up overnight, but I think what we're starting to see is the cumulative impact of what these facilities actually mean when they're so close to residential areas. The Inland Empire is more affordable than central Los Angeles. A lot of people move out there to get more space, to get more bedrooms, to accommodate a growing family. These warehouses came in and they promised job creation. They kind of build themselves as job centers. And I think for a long time, people saw them as that. And then as more and more facilities came to town, as they became larger and larger, as you know, e-commerce exploded, it's translated into a lot more truck trips People are concerned about pollution. They're concerned about raising children in an area where there's like so much particulate matter from trucks in the air. We've seen a lot of temporary, you know, 45-day, 60-day moratoriums against approvals on warehouses. We've seen a lot of public outcry and kind of grassroots campaigning to halt new approvals, to push back against already approved facilities. And there's been some legislation above the city level, the uh, air quality management district that um, oversees Southern California put into place some regulations that uh, many organizations that represent developers like NAOP came out against. Uh, The regulations were approved and they have to do with, um, you know, how... uh, I guess basically they're aimed at like reducing uh, environmental pollution from these warehouses, but it will come at a cost to the occupiers and the developers of these buildings. I mean, I've heard an industrial developer saying that it used to be that it was a selling point that you were not bringing housing to a community because it wouldn't put strain on the schools. And the conversations have completely changed and they're communities that have a lot of time and resources to, to kind of push against these developments. And it's, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be big for these people. And, and I, I, what I've heard in New York is they're accepting that and they're, they're kind of ready for that being a huge part of the development process going forward. I think that's really interesting too, that aspect of um, 
who is pushing back. I know that this Prologis site, the downtown bus terminal, is next to Los Angeles's Arts District. It is a place where there are, you know, um, beautiful warehouse lofts, where there's creative offices, and I know that some new residential projects have borne the brunt of community pushback, and that also made me wonder if maybe that is part of why Prologis was looking for a different kind of project that wasn't logistics, because there are people with time and resources to push back. But in the Inland Empire, that's a place where we traditionally have a lot of blue collar workers, a lot of you know people who've moved out in search of affordability. These are not necessarily people who have the time, who have the resources to push back. And I think that that is another important data point is that people are feeling like, uh, you know, why is it always communities of color? Why is it always poor communities that have to bear the environmental brunt of, you know, the uh, convenience and the economic growth of a region. You can't talk about real estate in 2022 without talking about the office market. From my perspective as a reporter, this year it's gone from kind of talking about the time that people are going to come back to how hybrid's actually going to work in practice. But there's so much uncertainty, always. We've seen something of a turnaround, for example, from the tech firms. Notoriously, they were soft on return to work policies. Now they're telling their workers to come back in. In New York, demand is down. This quarter has really not seen the lease signings that it normally would at this time of year. And availability in some parts of the city is at a record high. Here's a number for you. In Lower Manhattan, there is 22 million square feet up for grabs. Plus, news that Meta, for example, is pulling back, handing back space and terminating leases has made waves in the New York office market. In LA, there's a similar story at play. Tech has been a beacon through the worst of the pandemic, but that might be starting to change, Bianca says. For a long time, you know, tech and media were really pushing up the office market, and especially over the last two years, we were seeing them just kind of uh, buoying what was an uncertain sector as people struggled with, you know, COVID. And um, throughout it all, tech was, you know, continuing to occupy a lot of space. However, we are starting to see a pullback. One indicator is just like historically high subleased space. A lot of requirements that we saw, you know, a year ago are either on hold or non-existent. We saw some of the biggest names in LA, kind of like media and tech, you know, Netflix for sure, was putting space back on the market in Burbank, which was kind of one of its hubs where it was kind of had a large footprint there's kind of a question of, are we seeing the beginning of a pullback or, or has the, the pullback finished? I think also uh, companies like Snap, which, you know, not quite uh, as enormous as Netflix, but um, certainly an early tech pioneer, one of the first to sort of gobble up space in Venice and in the area that is sometimes called Silicon Beach um, along the coast. They said that they were going to do 20% of the workforce was going to be laid off. They're planning to reduce investments in real estate going forward. So yeah, we're seeing a lot of reductions in space, a lot of people putting their space on the market. 
I spoke with a researcher the other day who told me that, you know, it's, it's not super worrying to see someone put space on the market that has, you know, a year or two left on the lease, but he's starting to see more and more that people are putting up space on the market where the lease wasn't going to expire until like 2030, 2031. And that's concerning because people probably pretty recently thought that they were going to use that space and now are not feeling as confident. In New York, a lot of the big landlords have been saying that the law firms and financial tenants are playing a more active role in the market, kind of what New York was built on before the big tech craze. Who's busy in the market at the moment from a leasing perspective? Um, I would say that there's kind of a similar uh, current as what you described right now in New York. I'm looking at some of the you know top 10, top dozen office leases of the last year, and a lot of them are banks, uh, your financial services firms. A talent agency took up hundreds of thousands of square feet uh, in a building that hasn't even been built yet. And um, I think that the sentiment is similar that, you know, before everyone started leaning on streaming media, on tech companies um, to kind of take up their glitzy new office space, uh, it was always these kind of more traditional businesses that were uh, the foundation of the office sector here in Los Angeles and that we're kind of seeing a return to that. That's Bianca Barragan, our reporter in LA. Before her, Olivia Lukemeyer, BizNow's Dallas-Fort Worth reporter. And before her, UK editor Mike Phillips. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening to this and other episodes through 2022. Happy holidays and Happy New Year.